Before we dive into the podcast, I just wanted to give you a quick note. Sports are back. That means you can save 40% over at The Athletic. Don't miss exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season. You can subscribe now and save. If you sign up now for The Athletic, you can see for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash game theory, you can receive 40% off of an annual subscription. You won't want to miss the breaking stories on your favorite teams. You won't want to miss the in-depth coverage that The Athletic provides. So go to theathletic.com slash game theory for 40% off an annual subscription. We hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini, presented by The Athletic. I've got a beautiful two-part episode for you. I know that the NBA is starting up today, but this is going to be more of a draft-centric podcast. Why? Because I want to let the NBA rock a little bit. I want to have there be four days of games before I start talking about takeaways from the NBA, right? Having said that, the first part of this podcast is going to be a really great discussion with Matt Penny. We had him on recently back in early July. We're going to talk about some of my most recently updated big board, some point guard prospects and how they compare to one another. And then additionally, we're going to have a discussion about who the best wing in the draft class is. And then after that, we're going to have a nice little 20 minute interview with Elijah Hughes, who is a borderline first round pick early second round pick kind of guy from Syracuse. So Matt, how you doing, man? It's good to have you on the line. It's good to chat again. I'm glad that I didn't scare you off the first time. No, you didn't scare me off. I felt it was a pretty productive first date, but I was waiting for you to text me back to confirm that. So I'm here. I think it went well. I'm so pumped that you're here. For people who don't remember, Matt runs a scouting service. Uh, it's called High Major Sports, correct, Matt? Uh, that, that's fine. Yeah, it's the ATO Hoop Report, but it's under that umbrella. So we're in the same family. So... Matt is uh, Matt has a bunch of colleges that subscribe to his scouting service. And then additionally, he has a lot of NBA teams that subscribe to his scouting service. So he is as in the weeds on a lot of these guys uh, as anybody, realistically, and has seen them from the time that they were 15 on upward. Uh, Matt, is that, a, is that a fair characterization? Yes, that's a pretty good introduction. Make me sound better than I am. It's good. <laughs> That's the dream. Uh, former former UMass star, Matt Penny. That's how I'm going to introduce you from now on. That's been 10 games in three years is far from a star, but if, if it helps boost my <laughs> credentials to get me on this more often, that's fine. Keep on the star. Oh, I love it. Uh, all right, so let's dive in. The first thing that you wanted to talk about was my big board, right? I just yes. updated my 2020 NBA draft big board, and... It's very hard for me right now to figure out where to spot guys. Uh, part of it is that NBA teams in general, it's not that they're not working hard. They certainly are. But a lot of teams are taking a bit of a break on the draft right now because we're still three months out from the draft and they're going to dive back in starting in August. Right. So it's kind of hard for me to get a bunch of feedback in terms of where to start on one of these things right now and you know what guys have moved up and down having said that this is my project this is my big board this is my rankings and while I do get some feedback from teams in terms of guys that I'm too high or too low on like for instance um, 
I, I've just been pretty frank throughout the process. Like, I don't like Tyler Bay really as a basketball player at all. Um, I'm sure he's like a terrific person. And I don't mean to disparage him in that way, but I, I just don't like his game. I think he's very turnover prone. I think he's a bit overrated defensively. He doesn't really shoot it. Like, he's not my kind of guy, basically. But NBA teams are really high on him. They love the production. They love his athleticism. They love his length. They tell me he's going to go considerably higher. So, like, if I was creating just solely my board, Tyler Bay would probably be somewhere in the 80s right now. But because teams tell me, look, you're going to look bad if you don't have Tyler Bay somewhere uh, in draftable range, at least. I slide Tyler Bay up like 20 spots because that's the smart thing to do. And it's a more realistic and accurate representation of where I am in in conjunction with where the rest of the league is. So I would just love to hear your feedback on where I'm at, Penny. Let's, uh, let's hear it. Yeah. I think conjunction is the right word, right? Because I I think people look at this too, and it's not Sam's hundred favorite players. It's more on some feedback stuff and it's different than a traditional mock draft where you may look at, at needs and whatnot. So I I think that's a important thing to kind of outline as you have, uh, as we talked about offline, I think you've made some adjustments that make, so my argument's harder to make, but <laughs> you know, despite underselling that guys have turned it off a little bit, the bubble's about to tip off with real games, there is still the behind-the-scenes stuff. People are still looking for more intel and, and seeing what guys may be in their general range. Yeah, no question about that. I think that teams are trying to learn as much as they can. There's still the occasional pre-draft interview that teams are conducting. You know, I've heard of a few teams you know, maybe, maybe two or three times a week having a kid come around or having a kid come on zoom and, uh, you know, just kind of discussing basketball just to do their due diligence. But it it really is slowed down right now. Having said that you, you had some structural questions just about how I go about even compiling a project like this, because, you know, you're not one of those people that has to rank, you know, a hundred high school prospects right. like an Evan Daniels used to, for instance, right? You're yeah. someone that just, you know, rates them on, is this guy fit for your team? Is this guy a fit for your style of play? Is he a high major player? Is he a low major player? Is he a high major plus guy, a low major plus guy, etc. So yeah, structurally, I mean, I think a lot of our stuff is, is pretty similar and what I've gathered from college coaches and NBA guys too, but the interesting thing for me and what we were talking about a little earlier is some of these guys have made big leaps and rises on your board. I guess my question to you is why? Yeah, I think that that's a really great question. Something that like I kind of talked a little bit about on the last podcast, but I didn't like really dive into detail on it. Right. Like I think that a big thing that people don't necessarily recognize is that during the season, you're trying really hard to spread yourself as wide as possible in order to get a pool of players, right? Mm. Then once you get the pool of players and once you have them slotted in like specific ranges, right? Once you know that, you know, Tyrese Maxey, I had him at number five coming into the year because I really liked him. He's probably more of like a mid first round pick, right? Once you have Tyrese Maxey, Trey Jones slotted as like a mid first round pick. Patrick Williams slotted as like a mid to late first round pick. Um, Isaiah Stewart is like a mid first round pick, right? 
then you start doing deep dives on these guys. And for instance, like one guy that I pointed out in the big board column that I wrote that has really risen throughout my process of doing deep dives on guys is Malachi Flynn at San Diego State. There just isn't anything that guy does poorly, in my opinion. Like the more I keep watching him, I'm just like, okay, he is someone who can get his own shot. I think he can get it pretty consistently in isolation. Although there's like a small concern there that just being six foot one, it's going to be a little bit easier to contest him. And how much does that affect his shot as he goes up against bigger, longer guards? He has a floater game that supplements his struggles to finish at the rim, but everything else, I mean, he's an elite pick and roll playmaker. He can split defenders out of pick and rolls. He sees the court exceptionally well out of pick and rolls. He knows how to draw doubles, knows how to draw defenders and then make patient intelligent passes based off of that. He doesn't turn the ball over. He's an incredibly strong decision maker. He's a ridiculous pull up shooter. Um, he has range out beyond the NBA three point line. I just kind of look at everything he brings to the table and then, oh yeah, by the way, he was also the Mountain West's defensive player of the player year. Of the year. Yep, right. And say, okay, this guy should probably be a late first round pick because while there is some concern about him being six foot one, and while I certainly share that concern, he does enough well and has few enough holes to where to me the worst case scenario here is this guy is going to be a really good backup point guard. Yeah, I mean, you clearly like him. I mean, that's that's your guy at the end of the first round. We talked last time, who's your guy? I mean, that was a, a glowing endorsement. So I, I get that. I mean, it seems like you're digging more into the film and that type of stuff. And uh, I think that justifies putting him right there. I, I do have some concerns about the size like you do. I mean, obviously, he's a great leader. They had a great year. I've been a fan with him since before the transfer as well. So yeah. it is kind of interesting to see what that back-end first-round logjam, how it shakes itself out with the the Tyrell Terrys of the world and, and those guys that are all right there clumped together and see who separates himself, maybe more through individual workouts, and, and that's still months away. I mean, we don't even know if we're having a combine. I mean, we sent out the invitations to the party. We don't know if we're having the party, uh, but it, it will be something to watch going forward. Yeah, you know, I don't. I don't know if we're going to have a combine. It frustrates me that the NBA just continues to like theorize that there should be a combine. Uh, There are circles in the NBA. Frankly, it's teams that I don't think do a good enough job scouting that say that they need this information. They need the combine to be able to know where to take kids. Like to me, the combine is a luxury. Like we should not be having a combine in the middle of a fucking pandemic. Like, <laughs> well, I don't think they're. I don't think they have like the date and say we're doing it. I, I think some of it is they want to hypothetically keep the process moving rather than hurry up if we can do it. And while, while I understand what you're saying about some of the the negatives of it and, and people playing catch up work, I do think there is something to be said for you can get in a room with a prospect and really have a conversation face to face. It's not Zoom. It's not from a third hand person and really dig into what makes the player tick and think they're going to be motivated enough and say the right things, but then translate it and actually do the right things as well. Well, the big thing that teams want, I don't even think they care about that as much. They want medical reports. Like they, they yeah, want and, medicals. And, that, and that's another animal. If you could even get your hands on them, right? 
depending on who the agent is, what the setting is, or, you know, maybe a guy comes and just measures and jumps and doesn't do anything else too. Yeah. And like, there have been rumors of a virtual combine, right? Like maybe something like that exists where people, you know, the NBA sends out, you know, uh, who, who, who runs the, is it BAM does the measurement testing, right? Yeah, BAM testing. Yep. We've used that yeah. Before. Like maybe they send out people to like five or six different locations. Yeah, you and we do BAM, like you got a P3 spread out. You do a, you do a zoom. Everything is zoom, right? We're going to do zoom school and zoom meetings. Right. We'll do a zoom combine. Yeah. Right. And there have been ideas of having an in-person combine about like, maybe we'll send, you know, everyone to Orlando and make them quarantine for 10 days ahead of time. And maybe we'll send them to Chicago where the typical combine is like, nobody knows, I think is the problem here. Like whenever you talk to people on the inside of this, nobody knows where the NBA is going to land on it because the NBA is so focused on getting the bubble started. Right. That, right. And they should, right. Like it's not that nobody is, planning logistically for the combine right now. There are certainly people in the NBA front office that are. It's that nobody who like really makes the high level decisions on this stuff is going to be like, yeah, I'm focused on the combine at the expense of the bubble because the bubble is just so much more important. Like the combine doesn't make the NBA money. The bubble makes the NBA two to four billion dollars, depending on the estimate that you read. And to me, that's ultimately what it comes down to. Like, when, I understand the arguments that like we shouldn't put players at health risks uh, and have this bubble at all and continue the NBA season in the middle of a pandemic whenever the uh, virus is running roughshod over America, right? Uh, it's different in other countries that have gotten this under control. Uh, for instance, like Israel, Germany, these countries are not nearly as uh, virus prevalent, maybe is a way to put it as America is right now, um, to have luxuries uh, on some level, you have to handle regular society uh, in a positive way. And America hasn't done that. But if the union and the league agree that they would rather play as opposed to uh, in order to shore up the financial stability of the league is opposed to putting themselves at relative risk, right? By having to play these games, that's something I can at least get behind. And I understand the point of it. As long as every one of the stakeholders understands it. I understand there are other aspects to consider, such as the people who have to work at Disney, the people who have to um, clean rooms, the people who have to clean outdoors and everything like that. Like, look, I, I get that. Um, I-, I hope that the NBA is taking the necessary precautions for those people. And I hope that Disney is rewarding them handsomely for being willing to work during this time. Well, and this is where it comes back to the combine for me, and it's kind of similar to the G League, right? Like, the combine doesn't make the NBA money, so there's no, like, offset here in terms of should we really put resources into doing a combine? Like, it doesn't it doesn't make anyone any money. Like, there's nothing, there's no financial stakes to an NBA draft combine. There's no, the potential for injury and for, virus spreading and for frankly creating super spreaders by bringing everyone in from all across the country. Right. Like that far outweighs the information that an NBA team or frankly, people in the public sector would gain from having a combine. Like, I I just don't care about a combine. And, and like you kind of mentioned earlier before, it's the teams that have done their legwork, both with 
the college game and on the background intel on these guys where they won't need it necessarily as much either. So if it didn't happen, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think everyone would be up in arms. It would be a little bit different, but everything's been a little different this year and they just kind of have to take it in stride. There's no really other options. Right. And that that's where like the G League part comes into play too. Like I get that the NBA wants to continue its developmental league, but there's like the G League loses money for NBA teams. Like it, it frankly does. Like we can just call it what it is. As much as I hope that these kids that are making draft decisions will have multiple avenues to be able to go play next year. I just don't know. Right. Like I, I just, I struggle with the idea of there being a G league next year because there, there is no financial incentive to having a G league next year. Right. But it's tough too. It's like those guys are kind of on the bubble, but they're going to be late withdrawals or stay in the draft. It's really even a more of a dice roll. If the college season Maybe we have non-conference. Maybe you just go into conference play. There's very much up in the air how that looks. And now if the G League is really up in the air, and who knows what looks overseas, uh, it's it's just a very it's a very dicey proposition, I guess. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's let's talk about specific names on the big board. The first one that you wanted to bring up was Cole Anthony. I wrote yes. my coach's poll on Cole Anthony. Uh, what was that? That would have been a week ago. Something like that. Um, maybe last Wednesday, maybe last Thursday. I can't remember at this stage. But a lot of coaches were somewhat concerned about Cole Anthony. Didn't really quite see it in the same way that many NBA scouts do. I will tell you the feedback that I got from NBA scouts having written that story was, yeah, we're very polarized across the board. Some said they really liked him. Some said that um, they have him as like a late first round pick even. Like that, where I have him at 14 – his name is all over the map for NBA teams. Like straight up, there are teams that I think will have such a low grade on him that it will amount to having a not like don't draft him grade. I'm not saying that like they are red flagging him yeah, or anything like that. that. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, he's not on the board because he's yeah. so low that like he's not going to be in the mix. Right. I think I think he's the guy for me anyway that I'm most interested to see where he kind of ends up. Because I, I do think somebody could could reach early. I do think he could slide a little bit. Uh, his his backstory, I think, is important kind of for the narrative, too. His dad, Greg Anthony, played in the NBA. He played for the PSA Cardinals on the Nike UIBL, one of the most respected teams in the country. He goes to Archbishop Malloy. He goes to Oak Hill Academy. He goes to North Carolina. He's a consensus top five recruit in the top-ranked guard of the country. So gets to North Carolina. He starts a season like House of Fire. He has 34-11-5 against Notre Dame. And like you, I, I've kind of been all over the map on him. And I was getting those texts like, see, he's really good, you're wrong, you're a hater, whatever. Uh, then plays well against UNCW, has 20-10, and 10, 28 against Gardner-Webb. And then his numbers really start to taper off a little bit once he get into conference play. And it, it is important to note that he was out for a month with an injury, and he could have shut it down then. Some people were speculating he would. And then toward the end of the year... In his last regular season game against Duke, he was 4 for 14. He had 10 turnovers over two games in the AC tournament, and they lose to Syracuse to end the year by 28. So when you dive deeper into the numbers, he only shot 33% from the field versus ranked teams. I, I just question if that's consistent enough for a team to kind of give him the keys from day one. So uh, 
frankly, it's not like if you just go purely by the numbers, it's not. Uh, it's yeah, it's, it's not just there. Yeah. not. It's not there. The numbers are not there. The production is not there. The efficiency is not there. Uh, the big question is how much do you buy into the idea that North Carolina held him back? And I frankly do on some level. Having said that, his numbers are so rough that you have to buy into it even beyond the level that I think even I do on you know some level, right? Like North Carolina around him this year. The most common lineup was Brandon Robinson, Armando Baycott, Leaky Black, and Garrison Brooks. Brooks is good. Brandon Robinson can shoot, but none of the other three can shoot. And every single time Cole Anthony drove, it was just collapse on Cole, collapse on Cole. How do I know that that was the goal of of college coaches? I talked to them. And literally everything that their defense was built around was collapsing on Cole Anthony drives. It didn't really hinder them defensively against other guys either, because what are you going to kick out to leaky black for a shot and act like that's a good shot for North Carolina? Or in the case of Baycott and Brooks, those guys are already around the basket essentially like, Every time they would run pick and roll, a team would play drop coverage because Garrison Brooks isn't going to pick and pop. Armando Baycott can't finish outside of four feet. So there was just no recourse for not packing the paint against Cole Anthony. So how do you go about, and that's like with their best lineup. Brandon Robinson missed eight of the games that Cole Anthony played this year. So like a lot of the time you're talking about replacing Brandon Robinson with Christian Keeling, Andrew Playtech, and Justin Pierce, and those three combined to shoot 25% from three this year. So a lot of the time you're talking about lineups that are like Armando Baycott, Garrison Brooks, Leaky Black, and Andrew Playtech, or you replace Justin, you go Christian Keeling, Leaky Black, Justin Pierce, and Garrison Brooks, and it's just like nope, nobody cared to guard those guys outside of the paint. Because no one can hurt them outside of the paint. So every time the cold drove, collapse, collapse, collapse. And that makes his life exceptionally difficult. The other thing that makes his life exceptionally difficult, and I think this is even, that part of it I think is even to a different extent than what Anthony Edwards struggled with this year. Like Georgia did not shoot it well, but they at least had guys that teams were like, okay, maybe we have to close out on him with, North Carolina, nobody even tried, right? Like nobody tried to close out on North Carolina's shooters ever. They're spot up guys ever. The other part of it is that North Carolina does not run a pick and roll heavy attack. Like they they just don't. They run their Carolina break. They, you know, push the ball. They try to find that rim running big man. The wings are running wide to the three point line break so they can space the floor. Or if they get an early pass, they can drive baseline. Um, You know, if that doesn't work, then you're looking at a ball screen where the trailer big comes, or you're looking at a situation where Cole Anthony has to reverse to the trailer big. Uh, and then that guy gets into the triple threat and makes choices. Like after that, it's like a three out two in motion offense. Like it, it's not really pick and roll heavy. They've been within the bottom 50 teams in the country in terms of pick and roll each of the last three or four years, because that's just not what Roy Williams does at North Carolina. And I think that that goes to hinder the situation that Anthony is best in. Now, all of this is making excuses for a guy who shot 33% <laughs> yeah, yeah, against ranked teams, yeah, against ranked teams yeah, yeah, and, yeah, right. and shot 40% from two-point range this year. 
against ranked and non-ranked teams. Right. Like, so, it's really hard to figure out where to slot them in. It is. And I don't think North Carolina necessarily held them back. I think anything, it's of the same token, a little bit of potentially overexposure where he felt like he had to do so much more that some of these deficiencies just shine through more than would have. Like, maybe he takes an extra dribble or two waiting for someone to get open and he gets stripped. Like, I think that type of stuff happens. But some of my hesitation with him, too, is when he did get into the lane, I don't think he's athletic as somewhat being advertised. Like, he's not getting into the lane and, yeah. and dunking on rotating defenders. It, it's kind of using the rim as a shield and, and shying away from a little bit. Uh, doesn't play the best through contact. He does get to the free throw line. Those things worry me once he gets to the NBA. Uh, he only shot 75% of the free throw line in college. He was better in high school, so I think that can get better. But it's more the, does he facilitate enough to be a primary ball handler in the league? And, and I think his jumper is good enough. It's a funky release. It looks like he's comfortable with it. I know he does work on a shot a lot, so I'm not overly concerned with that. But what we haven't even touched on yet is the defensive stuff. He's straight up defensively far too often, and he does struggle against more athletic ball handlers. And you get to the NBA, and again, there's no nights off there. And I just remember when he was at Curry Camp during the practices, he struggled with Anthony Edwards and Jalen Green. And I'll give Cole credit. When the lights came on, he's a gamer. He was an MVP of the showcase game. He was fantastic. He was like a different player, but obviously it's more up and down type thing. Well, it's the same. It's the same boat too at McDonald's, where he was the MVP sure, at McDonald's. Right, right. He would have been the MVP go, at right. yeah, would have been yeah. the MVP at Hoop Summit as well. Like dropped like twenty five and seven in that game too. When the lights come on, that dude is a gamer. But yes. even during those weeks, he was pretty average. I thought. Yeah, and, and you see the type of performances, and this is bringing back the high school and when Cade Cunningham was really starting his rise to the the player and prospect he is when Oak Hill played. Mount Verde, Cade had 26, 9, and 7, largely on Colente. So those type of things are are some red flags, to be honest. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, the lack of explosion uh, is very concerning to me around the basket. Like, he just does not absorb contact well, I don't think. Uh, now, in the NBA, I think, frankly, he will have more opportunities to, like, really load up and explode. But whenever he doesn't get that chance to load up, you have to be able to be like a one-footed finisher that can pivot around guys and use your body control to get around them and then use your length to finish uh, at the basket with extension. Guys like Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Donovan Mitchell are really good at that stuff, and they're really good at it in part because they have seven-foot wingspans, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, and same with Shea, right? Yeah. Cole Anthony has like a plus-one wingspan at six-foot-three. Right. which is going to make his life as a finisher a lot more difficult. He basically has to develop an exceptional floater repertoire because I, I just don't really see him being a high-level finisher at the NBA level. No, I, I think you hit on all that, that stuff, the wingspan. The, he does have explosion in his workouts. It'll look like that. And I think one of your coaches in your series talked about that too. But yeah. it, it's different when you're on the court. And I, I think this is also kind of a – a good transitionary piece to tie your big board and some of the head-to-head stuff is I mentioned to you, you make it harder for me to make arguments, but you've, you've kind of bumped up Trey Jones from Duke. They're only like three spots away from each other on, on your board. Most other boards, the gap is, is wider. It's pretty enormous. Of, yeah. Yeah. So my question to you is if you just look at Trey, right? So 
16 points a game, 6 assists, 4 rebounds, 2.7 turnovers. Really same size as Cole. Shoots 42% from the field, 36% from three. ACC Player of the Year and Defensive Player of the Year. And if you dive in a little bit, it's only single-digit scoring games where Duke won about 30. So clearly he got the hook or they're spreading the ball around a little bit. Uh, I'll also note on Trey Jones, he's only four months older than Cole Anthony. There you go. Perfect. Adding the argument. Then head-to-head, he had 21-11 and 28-6-5. So not as much a, a shot at Cole, but more, I guess, toward you and, and your gap is closing. Why isn't anywhere you kind of see Trey right there or above Cole? I, I feel like a lot of people just settled in as him being maybe the first point guard, and you have Kyra above him now. We can touch on that in a bit, but just kind of your thoughts. Yeah, this is a, like internal dialogue that I've really gone back and forth on a lot. Uh, is why do I have Cole Anthony ahead of Trey Jones? Uh, also, I think in Trey's favor is that Trey has proven the ability last year at Duke, not 2019-20, but 2018-19, to be a very effective piece of a team that has other stars, right? Like he was an exceptional defender that season. He was a very, very good uh, passer, playmaker, decision maker, got all of those guys involved consistently as an initiator on offense. He just really couldn't shoot that year. I think he's gotten a lot better as a shooter. I still think he's considerably better off the catch as a shooter. And this is where I think determining the upside versus the floor of guys is real, right? Cole Anthony's a considerably, considerably better pull-up shooter than Trey Jones. Like, I know that Trey Jones shot 36% from three this year. Most of his shots made from three this year were off the catch. And by the way, it was off the back of basically a hot final 11 games. If you use Trey Jones's first, what is it? uh, Probably 54 games of his career at Duke. Trey Jones was a, I think it was 27%, 28% from three point shooter. Right. Right. I I think you like that trend though, right? You want a guy pushing and and shooting better and doing those types of things too, as the season winds down, as he's about to declare. I mean, I I think my argument. Absolutely. You're hundred percent right on that. Yeah. I I think my argument with Trey is that if you look at the numbers and, and I know Cole didn't necessarily have a ton of firepower, firepower around him. But like Trey, I, I think Cassius Stanley shot maybe 36% from three. I mean, people run him off the line. I, I think he was still collapsed on in the lane as well, and he didn't necessarily have as many issues as Cole may have had off the bounce. Uh, yeah, I'm no, okay, and, and 100%. Okay with, and I'm okay the way that Trey is hitting knockdown threes and not – I don't think you necessarily need him to create three-point opportunities for himself in the NBA. I don't, I don't think I don't see or envision him as that type of player, I guess. Yeah, so here here is why, and this is why you might have, this might be the final salvo that has convinced me on this, because I really am very close on the two. And like, I've been doing mental gymnastics back and forth, frankly, on them. What it comes down to for me is that Cole Anthony's upside is much higher, because as a terrific pull-up shooter, that is what every team is looking for. They want a guy that you can give 60 pick and rolls to a game, who can create efficient offense by being a pull-up shooter, by being a decision maker as a passer, by being someone who can finish at the rim. I don't think that Trey Jones can do that necessarily. I, I, you probably agree with me at the NBA level I on do. that, right? Yes. 
Yeah. But the question for me is, can Cole Anthony do that at the NBA level? Because right now, we've only really seen one piece of that puzzle. He's really only good at knocking down pull-up jumpers. And I do think he is a good pull-up shooter uh, at this stage of his career. And I think he's going to keep getting better at it. Trey Jones, I, I worry about him getting to the point where he is a high-level pull-up shooter. To me, when I watch Trey Jones, I'm like, this guy is very eerily similar to early career Kyle Lowry uh, coming out of Villanova, where he was much more comfortable as a shooter off the catch. Uh, Kyle was, frankly, even nowhere near as close to being Trey Jones's level as a shooter. But Trey is a little bit more athletic than what I think he gets credit for. He is obviously an exceptional defender on the ball and knows where to be in terms of a team concept. And he's a very, very good decision maker that portends itself well to playing off the ball early in his career. And then if the pull up jumper comes, the upside is insane. Like people are talking about Trey Jones, like he is uh, a finished product and that he doesn't have any upside. I think if he becomes a pull up shooter, which is a low potential outcome, but is something worth considering he's going to be a monster. Like he, he is going to be really, really, really good. But that is a, what, like a seven to 10% chance that he becomes like a yeah, pull-up shooter in the vein of Kyle Lowry. Right. Right. But I think his floor is pretty high though. And, and that's, I agree with you. And, 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 and defensive player of the year thing too. I don't know why, but it seems like people forget about that a little bit. Like I oh, had yeah, Trey Jones, like 17, 24, like defense player of the year in the ACC. Night right. in, night out. And, and yeah, he does have some, more help on the perimeter, but I, I, I don't want to completely undersell Cole. I mean, I, I think you're right in that he takes and makes tough shots and he can create his own shot. And that's a big part of playing on the next level as well. It's less system based. Maybe that college is he's going to have more spacing. He's definitely right. going to have more guys around him that even if they can't knock down threes, they're going to rip through and go to the basket, hit opposite, reverse the ball. Like, it's just, a, it's going to be a different game. Well, but here's here's the other thing about Trey Jones, too, and this is kind of what I was getting to before I interrupted myself going down a different <laughs> yeah, rabbit hole. I thought you were going to throw it at me. I'm like, I don't know, you're kind of running. No, that, that was definitely me. Um, if you don't trust either of them, really, to be high-level, high-leverage pick-and-roll creators, you definitely take Trey Jones ahead of Cole Anthony, right? Because Trey can do defensively at a high level, what Cole Anthony hasn't shown that he can do yet. Let's say I do like the way that Cole battles on bigger guys, but he just might be too small. Right. He, he battles and, and quickly. He's a, a good sneaky weak side shot blocker where if he sees somebody going down the lane, he'll take off and try to meet him at the rim. He's known for doing that too. Right. Um, but Trey Jones is a better shooter off the catch right now. He's not a better shooter period, but I do think that his comfort off the catch is much better. Obviously, a much better passer decision maker. I kind of think that if you believe that neither of them are going to be good enough to handle high amounts of pick and roll possessions, because frankly, the NBA just has better options to do that, right? Like Cole would have to take a pretty substantial leap to be able to be like a starting point guard in the NBA. Trey Jones, you could play him next to Jimmy Butler, potentially in Miami. Or, you know, have him next to Bam Adebayo initiating possessions out of the high post and stuff. Like, Miami, to me, is, like, the perfect Trey Jones fit. Like, I really just want him to end up in Miami. But Because you trust him, too. You hit the high post, it's doubled. He's the catch-and-shoot guy. He spaces out. You hit him. Then you make a pay. Then it opens up everything else. Right. And I think he's going to be able to do that. 
and the defensive mindset I think would fit really well. He'd be a really great compliment with Kendrick Nunn. But if you don't trust either of them to be high level pick and roll creators, Trey Jones brings much more to the table as a secondary playmaker that, you know, brings the ball up the court and then passes off to Jimmy Butler who handles a pick and roll possession, or they give the ball to Giannis in an ISO, uh, or you know, runs a pick and roll with Giannis, reverses it to Giannis after a switch, so that he can take advantage of the mismatch, right? Um, and that being the primary action of the set. If you think that you don't want Cole Anthony or Trey Jones to be the singular person initiating the primary action of the set, then I think you take Trey Jones, and I think that that's where I'm at. I think you might have just convinced me that I would rather have Trey Jones than Cole Anthony. I think you convinced yourself. I think you cut off yourself, convinced yourself, but it's good. I'm glad I'm part of the process to getting the brain waves rolling. No, I think that that was, I think you nailed it. I think that this was, this was you that, that stirred the drink in terms of bringing up the conversation. So I'm here for it. I was, and then, the, I was the point guard of the conversation. I'm just facilitating. I was hitting the high post. You're making the plays. That's it. That's right. Um, and then you want to talk about Kyra Lewis against these guys. And to me, Kyra brings kind of the best parts of both other than the defensive tray to the table because he can play both on and off ball as a point guard uh, offensively. He can knock down shots both off the catch and off the dribble. He has much better live dribble passing ability than Cole Anthony, in part maybe because North Carolina's Offense doesn't really allow for those reads to be showcased, but also because Kyra's does, frankly. And frankly, Cole hasn't always shown them. He's shown some of them throughout his career, not enough of them in my opinion, though. In Kyra's case, though, he has the lightning quick speed in transition that is going to allow him to be a very strong playmaker uh, with high-level athletes at the NBA level and is going to be a good half-court player that can play both on and off ball next to stars. Or potentially, I think that this is like a low-level outcome, like a low-level upside outcome, but um, he could he could be like a top-10 point guard that really initiates a lot of sets. Yeah, and I think people don't know the whole story there either, that he's exceptionally young for his class. He went to Alabama a year early. So like a lot of analytics people like that is in, he still may be growing into his body too. And, like, his slight yep. frame is a, a little bit of cause for pause for me. I, I like his burst out of the pick and roll. Uh, I, I do worry a little bit right now about finishing. I mean, his pullback dribble and, and like, a, a short-range floater, he really has to make that a, a go-to, go-to weapon if he can't get all the way in the lane. Uh, he'll take floaters. I don't think he converts necessarily as much as you'd like him to. But the speed is, is obviously game-changing. I mean, is he more wired to score than pass facilitate, though? I would have said yes to that early in the season. I don't know that I feel that way anymore. I think that throughout the course of the year at Alabama, he really got to the point where he was exceptionally comfortable making plays for his teammates. And I think that that is where I'm most intrigued by his development. His ability to make plays consistently for those around him directly off of a live dribble. Right. And then, like we said, the pick and roll is, is so prevalent in the NBA and he knows how to change speed and really attack it and, and hit the first defender that steps up when he's able to spray it in the corners, to guys that are, are spotted that shoot at a, a higher percentage too. I mean, I, I think his assist numbers will go up I mean, his, his turnover stuff. You'd like him to get a little bit better of a grasp of, 
but I think that'll that'll also come with time and maturity as well. So where are you on Kyra? I guess would be my question, like in the context of both of those guys. I like him when I opened up your big board and said, holy smokes, he's 10th. I didn't necessarily have him there. I'm still more of the let's go after some wings first, and then if he's maybe five to eight spots lower, I'm okay with it. I think there's a few guys there that I would try to look at a little bit longer before I took him 10th. Yeah, I think that's reasonable, and I think that leads into the final discussion that we wanted to have here is trying to figure out who the best wing in this class is because I've gone back and forth on this quite a bit. Um, Isaac Okoro, I feel like, is the one that gets brought up the most, and we're, we're saying like true wings here. Like Denny Avdia is going to be a bit more of a combo hybrid 3-4 guy. Uh Anthony Edwards probably will play the two, but I think of him more as a combo guard based off of what we've seen of him. Same with Tyrese Halliburton, right? Uh, True wings, though, we're talking Isaac Okoro, Devin Vassell, Aaron Neesmith, Sadiq Bey. You, I think, kind of think of Patrick Williams as more of a true wing than a four, and I do agree with you if he can really bring the skill level up to the table. Did you say wing or forward or four? Yeah, wing four. Like, you see him more on the wing side of the spectrum versus the forward side of the spectrum, do you? Yeah, I mean, he's somewhere in that 3-4 combo range. I mean, I yeah. really like the way he uses his his frame and his body. That they were Florida State was really good at getting him these quick post touches for baskets and, and quick little isos that he was exceptional at. And his one-drill pull-up when he was chased off the three-point line. I'm just slower to anoint it as a 3 and D guy because the three-point shot needs a little bit of yep. work. But the mid-range does make me think that it can be worked on. I want to say he was like an 84% free-throw shooter too, which is sometimes an indicator that the shot can come around from distance. Well, so let's, let's talk about the jumper then. Uh, what do you not like about the jumper from three? It seems like he thinks about it a little bit more in the release. It seems so natural when he's in mid-range and he elevates to really high release. When he shoots from three, it's just you don't know what you're getting. Like, he misses a million different ways. So it's not even he's at a point where he's missing consistently, which sounds funky, uh, but it it just doesn't seem like it's close to being. He shot 32% from college three this year. You back him up a few feet, what's that percentage as a rookie? 28, 27? Probably. I I would think it's somewhere in that range. I agree with you in terms of the shot consistency, but what I really like about Patrick Williams, and I I don't quite think he's in the same class as like an Isaac Okoro right now. Um, I would also probably take his teammate Devin Vassell. Although, as we talked about before we got on the podcast, and I'll let you speak to this a little bit more, um, a lot of the coaches that I talked to for the college coaches poll, which I'll do both of them together at some point, the feeling I got is they're a little bit higher on Patrick Williams than they are on Devin Vassell in terms of upside. Yeah, almost unanimously. I mean, I talked to, I stole your playbook and, and reached out to some contacts before this call. And yeah, I mean, consistently it was Patrick Williams for production, Vassell for potential, but all the guys, the coaches I talked to, they preferred Patrick Williams for right here, right now. I think people see the upside in Vassell, especially what he can do as a run-and-jump guy on the fast break. His three-point shot is very good. I think it even fixes form a little bit. He shot 42% 
very good uh, perimeter defender at the rim. But, you know, you look at Patrick Williams, and I think he graduated high school around 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, He's now 6'8". He has a man's body. Uh, I think you can put him in the post a little bit for some quick hit stuff, even at the NBA level. I think he's a little bit more prepared, but it's do you want something here and now, or are you willing to wait three years and see kind of how this thing develops? Yeah, I think that with Williams and or, uh, Williams and Vassell, it's going to be situational. Uh, I still would take Vassell because I trust the jumper and the defensive ability just a little bit more. Williams has more upside defensively. I don't know that he has more upside offensively, to be honest. Like so much of it is that quick hitting post stuff, quick hitting cutter stuff where he's running the baseline, just trying to duck in on guys. Moves well away from the ball. Yeah, moves really well away from the ball. But Vassell does all that too, and we just know what a premium shooting is at the NBA level right now. And Vassell is going to be a guy that's going to knock down damn near 40% of his threes. And I feel pretty confident of that. And that just that portends itself to playing a high level uh, role at the next level, even if Williams might have a bit more star power, quote unquote. And Vassell, I mean, if he starts to do more off the dribble, which he, he frankly didn't do a ton at FSU this year. And with Florida state, when you have a rotation of 9, 10, 11 guys and everyone's playing about 25-plus minutes, I mean, you don't necessarily have the time to show an expanded skill set either. So uh, there could be more to kind of unpack. I mean, he had, Vassell has a very long wingspan. He's fluid laterally. He challenges everywhere all the court. So I understand the, the NBA piece of it, but it was more interesting to me that almost unanimously college coaches said Patrick Williams. Yeah, it was to me too. Uh, the big thing though is that Williams is going to have to, there's so much mechanicism in his shot. Like it looks very robotic and very stiff. Um, you can get away with that if you're wide open in the corners, but like it's not going to portend itself to going off of movement, right? Like it's going to be purely a spot up shot. With Vassell, like Vassell can run off of screens and knock down shots like pretty easily. And that's where like the real value comes into play for me. Um, so let's remove Patrick Williams just from like the best wing in this class equation. He's out. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, I have him at number 16 on my board. I'm a big Patrick Williams fan. I certainly would draft him somewhere in the top 20, but I just don't necessarily think he brings as much to the table as someone uh, like in a Coro where. Even though I, I don't know. Do you trust Isaac Okoro or Patrick Williams more as a shooter right now? As a shooter, just alone, I guess I'd say Patrick Williams, but I think we're splitting hairs a little bit. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Okoro does everything else better, in my opinion. Like he's yeah. I mean, with Okoro's jumper, his arms kind of drifts apart pretty consistently. He, he has some bad misses. I, I want to say it was like twenty four percent or somewhere in that range. So similar problems. Yeah, definitely similar problems, similar mechanicism uh, on the jumper where he has like a bit of a hitch at the top as well. Uh, doesn't shoot nearly as much of a moon ball as Patrick Williams oh, like that. Moon ball. Yeah. That thing's that thing looks like he wouldn't be able to shoot down in the bubble in Orlando right now, given how low those ceilings are. Yeah. Um, but Okoro is a lot more comfortable with the ball. I think he's a lot more comfortable as a passer, a lot more comfortable as a straight line driver, can maneuver around bodies around the basket, not really like a, 
you know, live dribble ball handler who's going to break you down, but does have a good first step to where he can attack the front foot, get into the lane, and then maneuver around a rim protector to finish, or just straight up fucking explode through that rim protector, right? Um, the more I think about the way that his body mechanics will work at the next level, the more excited I am about him in comparison to someone like Devin Vassell, where originally my thought process was, okay, this is just tailor-made 3 and D, right? Like this is an easy way to plunk a guy into a role who will be very successful, be a, you know, Danny Green, you know, I have Lakers on the mind because I've just submitted like five DFS lineups for tonight. But like, you know, Danny Green, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, like those guys that can play 3 and D levels and then defend at a high level on the perimeter. Um, in Okoro's case, it's going to be a little bit more complicated while he figures out the jump shot. But I think the upside is much more substantial on defense because he's going to be able to take on bigger, longer players and deal with them physically. Uh, whereas Vassell, I think, is going to be more of a guard defender uh, who is always trying to constantly help around uh, the weak side and looking to chase down weak side blocks here and there occasionally, looking to get into passing lanes. Whereas Okoro is going to take on tougher assignments man to man. Yeah, Okoro is my top wing if I had a choice here. I don't want to say it's a, a huge gap, but I, I think significant enough for me. I was late to his party. He was playing at the same high school with Sharif Cooper, who's going to Auburn next year. And he was just a, a wizard with the basketball, and I, I kind of like fell for that. I didn't really hone in enough on the player that Isaac Okoro was. But if you talk to coaches that have played him this year, guys do not stop raving about him. Say impacts yep. winning so much. He's a pit bull. You can't hear a negative thing. And if when you try to bring up the offense, it's it's almost like it's uh, you're insulting him. Like, well, no, right. he does he does so much this. He switches this and that. Uh, he knows how to use his body and his shoulders and frame to to overpower guys. I mean, when they played Vanderbilt and Aaron Naismith was on him, he just his eyes lit up and, and went right through him. Right, uh, defensively incredibly versatile. No problem switching onto guards, switching back to forwards, back to guards. He communicates. If you watch the film, he'll talk. He'll point out assignments. The screen coming. He gets over screens. He'll square his body. He challenges shots. I like his rebounding numbers to be a little bit better, but everything else on that side of the ball, I'm all in on. Yeah, no, I actually completely agree with you on the defensive side. Um Let's compare him to Naismith because you brought that up uh, in regard to their matchup. To me, Naismith is just like a, you know, tailor-made role player as a shooter, right? You know, six foot five, six six with a six ten wingspan. Really, really good at shooting off of movement. Vanderbilt and Jerry Stackhouse, they brought a lot of NBA style, you know, screening actions where uh, I'll let you kind of break that down. Cause I know that you were excited to talk about that based off of our pre podcast call, but uh, really just exceptional using screens and flare screens to be able to get open and then additionally quick release on the shot. Right. I mean, he was really good playing off kind of that floppy action, those low screens. And then he was also good at, he'd set a flare screen, he'd get another screen. And when he catches, he does square his body. Well, his shoulder toward the basket, he's a good release. It's pretty, I am worried about his handle more so as, as a pure catch-and-shoot guy or coming off a pin down. I think he'll be very good. But trying to create his own shot, like I don't see much herky-jerky movement to him. Most of it is straight-line drives, but he is able to gather himself off the catch so maybe convert 
a little bit. I mean, he's best served to me playing with a creating point guard where the guy can drive the lane, maybe drag his man with him and kick, catch and shoot. Yep. And defensively, I mean, I like his size. I felt like he should have been a little bit better. Sometimes he was lost off the ball, recover a little bit slow. But you hit on it. I mean, he's he's a great piece somewhere. I just see him as a, as a more rotational type guy. Yeah, I agree. And I think that the reason I have Devin Vassell over him is I trust him a lot more defensively. I, I just trust Devin a lot more. He knows where to be. Uh, his help defense is a lot more uh, disruptive just with the way that he uses his hands, the way that he contests. They're basically the same size. Neesmith is a bit stronger and bulkier. Uh, Vassell a little bit quicker. And a little bit, he Vassell looks longer than Aaron Neesmith is as well. Just like kind of has that like thin wiry, wiry yeah, frame. Right. Yeah. Whereas Neesmith's a bit more bulky. They do have around the same wingspan though. Um, I, I just trust Vassell's instincts on that end a lot more. And I think that that brings up the final guy here is a guy that you've seen a lot as we talked about on the last podcast, Sadiq Bey. Sadiq Bey hit 45% from three, but... Unlike Vassell, I think of him a lot more as a standstill catch-and-shoot guy versus someone who's going to be super successful off of movement. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think he's a better defender than Naismith, maybe. Obviously, he's not in the same categories of Coral, but it, it'll yep. come down to fit. I mean, what does the, the team really need? I think regardless, I'd take a Coral over any of those guys. But then when you get down to Vassell, Patrick Williams, Naismith, uh, Sadiq Bay, it, it, it's going to come down to what you have, I think, a little bit. I don't know if it'll necessarily be best player available on the board, but okay, do we need shooting? Can the guy do a little bit more off the bounce than this one? Are we okay if he's not as strong defensively? That'll be up to, I think, individual teams' desires. Yeah, like if I'm Dallas, who I believe is slated for 18 or 19 right now, I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, and let's say that they move up to number 11 to try and get one of these guys, which is frankly something they need. They need a three and D wing with true wing size who can also defend to play next to Luka Doncic and Kristaps Porzingis, who's willing to play like something of a low usage role, right? To me, the guy that makes the most sense for them, assuming a Coro would be off the board in that scenario would probably be Devin Vassell. Yeah, that's what I was going to say as well. Because I think that the ability to shoot off a of movement would really work well with some of the creative stuff Rick Carlisle's going to run. And then the defensive ability would be exceptional in that scheme. When you get to Bay versus Naismith, have you run into people that have kind of questioned Sadiq's athleticism in a pretty real way and how that's going to translate defensively? Because th- there is some very real concern among NBA teams on how he's going to defend. Yeah, I think a little bit. It's ironic summon when he was playing on the grassroots circuit people had those same hesitations when he initially committed to nc state and went to villanova i think a lot of people on the outside assumed he would be like a four-year guy there be good go overseas so he's gotten better and put in the time into it into improving his athleticism there is some pause or hesitation i don't think it's as crazy as maybe you're hearing but, yeah, I, mean, there's, there's, I don't there's, even. There's some reason to say like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's a a knockout. He's the three and D, and the D is as good as his standstill shooting. Yeah, I don't even know that it's like crazy in terms of the concern, but it, it definitely is something I get. Like, what is this guy like? A better shooting version of like Jacob Evans. I, I think people are a little bit thrown by like how poorly Evans translated after. 
people were kind of excited about him coming into the draft as a guy who could knock down shots, as a guy that could handle the ball and make passes a little bit here and there on the wing at Cincinnati. And at the end of the day, he just didn't have the requisite athleticism, right? Just right. didn't have it to play at the next level. Uh, Sadiq, I think, does, though. And that's where I think that comparison falls apart. He's also like two inches bigger and probably has four inches longer of a wingspan, too. But whenever I watch Sadiq, I think the standstill shooting is so strong. I think his feet are a lot quicker than what he gets credit for. He's not explosive vertically, but you watch that Kansas game where he got thrown on to Devon Dotson in the second half. And they said, Hey, we need you to stop this guy. He really did a great job slowing down Devon Dotson, who is one of the quickest guards in this draft. Yeah, no, he's a burst of energy. I mean, he played on our circuit too with team Charlotte. And I think Sadiq is, He's another one who's like crept the draft boards without anything really happening, so to say, in the last couple months. I think there's a lot of value for him in the 20s if he's there, but there's enough intrigue, I think, in what you said. If we're looking at more of a role-player-type draft, he fits that really well. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Penny, is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get out of here? Before I talk about, I got a lot of crap last podcast. I didn't have like an Oscar like acceptance speech to like thank everyone I've ever met in the basketball world. So I, I, you have to thank the academy. Thank yeah, the academy, I mean, Penny. I have to thank the academy. I have to thank Dan Cutler. I have to thank the Ring Lee's fan club. But the thing that I did whiff on last time, which I should have done, is I just wanted to shout out Coaches for Action. It's founded by 21 assistant coaches in the Big East. Shared mission to use a platform of athletics to educate. Bring awareness to social injustices. They're establishing scholarship funds. So, uh, small way for me to hype that up in, in between us making fun of each other and fighting over wings and guards. I love that so much. Penny, thank you so much for coming on. Tell them where they can follow you online. Oh, online. That's great. So, uh, on Twitter, it's mpenny, M P E N N 1 E, because I guess M Penny was taking. Uh, yeah, I'm there. I'll retweet your podcast a hundred times to try to get some love. Matt's the best, guys. Uh, thank you for coming on, Matt. We will be back in a couple of minutes here with Elijah Hughes out of Syracuse. Before we get to Elijah Hughes, I just have a Quick little advertisement for you from DraftKings. The final 22 teams have made their way down to Orlando and are ready to get back out on the court. While the ending to this year's basketball season will be different than in years past, there will not be a shortage of excitement. And there's no better place to get in on all of the action than at DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. To celebrate the return of basketball, DraftKings will have not one, but $2 million top prizes through the first two days of the resumed season so get in on all of the action now if you haven't tried it yet fantasy basketball is easy to play you just pick eight players stay under the salary cap and pile up points for three pointers rebounds assists and more there's no better way to put your basketball knowledge to the test than to compete for a million dollars on DraftKings. But if basketball isn't for you, don't worry. DraftKings is offering plenty of other fantasy golf action, fantasy baseball action. I myself have four different NBA lineups in tonight and six different baseball lineups in tonight. So with millions of dollars up for grabs this week, there's no better place to have skin in the game than with DraftKings. Download the DraftKings app now and 
Use that promo code RUN to get a free shot at millions of dollars up for grabs this week with your first deposit. That's promo code RUN, R-U-N, to get a free shot at millions of dollars with your first deposit. Only at DraftKings, there's a minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Now, let's go to Elijah Hughes. All right, and we're back here on the Game Theory Podcast with Elijah Hughes. He is a six foot six wing out of Syracuse, uh, averaged 19 points a game this year, actually led the ACC in scoring this year, if I remember correctly, right, Elijah? Yes, yes, I did. That's a that's got to be a point of pride, doesn't it? Absolutely, you know, anytime you can lead a uh, power conference in any categories, uh, definitely a uh, point of pride. So Elijah's draft range is somewhere late first, early second round. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to him because the NBA is looking for a lot of guys in Elijah's mold. Like I said, 6'6", 6'10", 6'11", wingspan, pretty long arms, kind of everything that teams are looking for. So I guess that the first place that I will start is the same place that I start with every other prospect that has come onto this show so far. And Given that this is an NBA audience and given that a lot of people who listen to the show maybe have not seen you play as much, if you could describe your own game in your own words, how would you do so? Um, you know, I would describe myself more as a, as a playmaker and somebody who can score the ball and also just compete at a high level. You know, I feel like I do all three of those things at an at a extremely high level when I'm on the court. And, um, you know, I just try to make the, always make the right play, whether it's making the right read to score, making the right read to make the right pass, or um, even on defense, making the right rotation and communicating with guys. So I just always try to make the right play. So, yeah, you averaged over three assists a game this year as well. Uh, You had the ball in your hands a ton, and we'll talk about that momentarily. But your journey to get to this point is really interesting as well because Mm -hmm. you start out at East Carolina, and you start seven games your freshman year at East Carolina. You averaged 7.8 points per game. Uh, You didn't even really particularly shoot well from three that year you shot 27 percent from three and you decide to transfer after that year and you end up at Syracuse so I guess that my initial question is just kind of how did that whole freshman season go down and then what made you decide on Syracuse being the right place for you right you know anytime as a freshman not not highly rated out of high school it's going to be a struggle at times you know coming into a program and um it's really just a mental it's a mental challenge and um my freshman year was, was a struggle um I was hurt uh, I was shooting the ball well. I never really got into great shape after I after I came back from my injury. So it was just hard to find a rhythm and then just getting the uh, you know right state of mind. So I decided to transfer and um you know Syracuse was, was you can't really say no to Syracuse school like Syracuse. So uh, when I got there, it was just you know we just took off. Who were some of the other schools that were recruiting you after your transfer? After my transfer, um, Seton Hall, uh, Syracuse obviously, um, Iona. You know, a bunch of a bunch of other Big East schools were in the mix as well, uh, but it was pretty much down to those three because I know I wanted to be closer to home, closer to my family, yep. and uh, so it was probably it was pretty much down to those three. But originally, it was kind of just Seton Hall. You know, Seton Hall was pretty much a lock. That's where I was you know, pretty much going. Um, and then you know, Syracuse got in the mix, and uh, it was like, like I said, it's hard to say no to Syracuse. Yeah, and give a little bit of background on where you're from originally, given the fact that you said close right. from home. You're from New York, uh, yeah. for people who don't I'm, know. Yeah, I'm from Beacon, New York, which is north of new york city about 
hour 15, hour 20 in northern New York City in Dutchess County, uh, right around the Newburgh, Poughkeepsie area. So small little city. Um, everyone knows everybody, but uh, I'm proud to be from here. So you get to Syracuse, you sit out a year. What was that transfer uh, season like, that sit-out year? Because some players, they don't really like it. They hate the fact right. that they can't go out and compete with their teammates and they can't get out on the court and play in games, whereas other guys really respond to it and use that right. year to get better and improve little parts of their game. How did you respond right. to having to sit out? Honestly, it was a mixture of both. You know, I I, I didn't like it because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm 19 or 20 years old. I want to. I love playing basketball, so I, I want to play basketball. But it was also, you know, since it was a time for me to mature and uh, just lock in and try to get better on all my weaknesses. And you know, just looking back and just being more of a sponge, just trying to learn and um, listen and, and see how coach does things and see how he coaches his guys and not trying to be the guy that always gets yelled at when it's my time to play or be that guy that I was always messing up in the zone or just things like that. So just really becoming a sponge. And um, I think the for winter, like the winter break, coach let me go home for a couple of days since I wasn't really playing. And then when I came back in January, um, I kind of just turned up another notch, you know, working with Jay McNamara every day, Eric Devendorf every day. We just took it up a whole other level and uh, working with my strength coach, uh, Ryan Cabillas. Every every day, almost pretty much every day, and um, you know, we just took a head on, and uh, I just locked it from that point on. So you get there, you start uh, from basically the word go uh, in twenty eighteen nineteen, your redshirt sophomore season, and the big leap came in terms of numbers as a three point shooter. Uh, right. You were taking seven three pointers a game. You were up at thirty seven percent, but your role was very different. Uh, during that sophomore year versus what it was in your junior year. During your junior year, you were a guy that ended up having to take on a much larger offensive responsibility. Uh, You took on a ton of pick and roll action. You had to, you know, really create for an offense that, you know, we're not breaking news here. You guys aren't running like the most intricate sets in and out. A lot of it is, you know, we're giving the ball to Elijah. We're making a play. We're giving the ball to Joe Girard. We're making a play. How was that adjustment going from being a spot-up threat during your sophomore year to being more of an on-ball threat who was responsible for, frankly, creating most of Syracuse's offense during your junior year? Um, I, to be honest with you, it was a lot of fun. You know, it was just it was another challenge. I love challenges. I love, um, you know, when it's when it's stuff is stacked against us and we got to, you know, make things happen myself as well. And uh, that, that May after my sophomore year, uh, we, everyone had their, their one-on-one meeting with coach, you know, coach told me that, you know, guys are going to be leaving, graduating. So I'm going to have a lot of more responsibility. Um, didn't think it would be this much more responsibility, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I enjoyed it. I really did. I embraced it. You know, um, we had a lot of young guys. So just stepping into that leadership role was something new to me as well. Uh, it's my first, that was my first real time, you know, having to lead a group really at a high level like this. And so and I thought I did a, a decent job with it. And, um, you know, playing with guys like that, I don't want to put all attention on myself, but my teammates were just unbelievable. You know, they were so easy to play with, so easy to, you know, just be around. And they're, they're great listeners. And if they if they point out something in my game that I could fix and help the team, I'm all ears. So just playing with a great group of guys, great coaching staff, has made it my job much more easier to make plays. So – one thing that really stands out to me is just the diversity of skill set that you showcase this year as a scorer on offense. Mm-hmm. You know, you were a guy that could go in isolation and go get a reasonable shot. Uh, right. 
whenever you were just on an island with a guy, right? Uh, you ran a ton of pick and roll stuff. You were, you know, finishing multiple possessions a game directly out of pick and roll. Obviously, you were getting a lot of spot up opportunities because you are still such a good shooter and you were playing mm-hmm. on the wing. Um, a lot of the time, you were the guy bringing up, bringing the ball up the court in transition right. and then attacking the basket. So you, you really are something of a three level scorer. And in addition to that, you even showcase some ability as a post-up threat as well, taking right. on different little mismatches. How have you gone about developing uh, all of those disparate parts of your game? Like a lot of guys now are specialists. They're really good right. uh, running off of screens and catching and shooting, or they're really good uh, just off of spot-ups. They're really good just in pick and roll. You're good at a lot of different things. How have you gone about developing that diversity of your skill set? Right. Uh, to be honest, it was that summer going into my junior year. Uh, I worked with Jay McNamara every single day. Um, I didn't go home at all that summer. Even in that, you know, they usually give us little breaks in August to go home, but we actually had went to Italy as a team to play a couple games over there for like a foreign tour. So I didn't get to go home at all. Um, <clears throat> I just stayed in the gym. We worked on everything, like literally everything. We worked on posting up. We worked on ball screen situations, different things to go to in the ISO situation. We watched a lot of film. And, um, no, we just really dug into it that summer. We got after everything. You know, it's not. We didn't. We didn't really, you know, try to just master one thing. We try to be really good at everything. So that's really the biggest thing that I. That's the reason why you know I had the year I had. One hundred percent was because of Jerry McNamara and the work we put it together. Obviously, moving to the next level, your role is going to specialize a little bit more, and I feel like right. people often look at your number from three point range and see that you shot 34% from three this past year, right on seven attempts per game. And I think they often underrate you as a shooter because of it, because you were responsible for taking so many shots late in shot clocks. You were the guy that was responsible for creating all of those opportunities. Right. Coming directly off the catch, I mean, you were well above average this year. You made uh, 54.3 effective field goal percentage directly off the catch and shoot. So 37%, 38% of your uh, catch and shoot three-pointers fell. How comfortable are you going to be downshifting back into that more limited role once you get into the NBA and are surrounded by more star-level players? Uh, You know, I'm very comfortable, very comfortable. These last couple once everything ever since, since everything has been stopped through the virus um i've really been you know watching a lot of guys um like you know danny green chris middleton like they uh they're just easy to play with because they make shots so and that's some that's somebody that you know i know i can i watch my i, I can see myself being those kind of guys you know just spacing the floor out just every time you know it's a baseline drive i can be on the other side getting ready to knock down a shot or off the skip pass or whatever the case may be so you know, I'm ready for. I know that you know if I'm able to play in the NBA one day, that you know I'm not going to be, you know, shooting a lot, ton of shots my first, my, my not my rookie year. So I understand that, and I know that I'm going to go in there and just work hard. You mentioned Danny Green and Chris Middleton. Both those guys are also very high level defenders. One of the right. criticisms yeah. that is often thrown at Syracuse guys is, well, they can't play man to man defense. You know, right. before we get to that part of it, I guess that my question for you is. What was the adjustment like going from East Carolina where you played man-to-man defense to playing that 2-3 zone at Syracuse where it's just a totally different ball game? Like even Syracuse's 2-3 zone is very different from other 2-3 zones due to the way that it's aggressive with how the wings fly up all the time and do a lot of different stuff. Right. Uh, It was a learning learning, learning, uh, curve for me, you know, that my first year there. Luckily, I had the redshirt year, so I was able to, you know, see it every day in practice. I was able to 
you know, watch every single rep and every single game. But um, it was definitely a learning curve. And uh, a lot of the thing that people don't understand about the zone in Syracuse is that it has man principles. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it has a lot of man principles in it, you know, the rotations, uh, the closeouts, all that kind of stuff. So um, no, that was huge in the zone. And just, you know, we have, you know, those, usually those typical you know, long athletic kind of wings that cover a lot of ground. And uh, that made it not easier, but it makes it really hard for, for teams to get going on us. But uh, the zone, it's not it's not sweet. It's not easy to to, to score on. It's and it's not easy to perfect. You know, I watched clips when we had uh, some of the, our best zone defensive possessions, and it's like Jesus, like the way we were flying, the way we were moving. It's like <laughs> I don't know if anybody <laughs> would be able to score on us. So it's definitely not like nothing sweet. That's because it's a zone. People tell they're gonna get a lot of threes up and just shoot us out of it, but. That really, really, rarely happens. Yeah, I'm not an enormous fan of zone defense in general, but uh, whenever it's rolling, whenever a team is playing really, really good zone defense and kind of moving as one in synchronicity, right? There is yeah. something like totally beautiful about it. Yeah, it's it's, it's really beautiful, super beautiful. I love I love it. Uh, it gets me going. I guess my teammates going. Everyone just gets hype off it. It's just it's crazy. So having said that, though. You are different than the typical Syracuse prospect insofar right. as we can go back to your freshman year and we can mm-hmm. watch tape of you playing man-to-man defense at East Carolina right. where you were pretty good as a man-to-man mm-hmm. defender. How comfortable are you going to be shifting back into that man-to-man structure once you get into the NBA? I'm looking forward to it, honestly. You know, I, I played man-to-man my whole life, you know, not just East Carolina, my whole life until I got up to Syracuse, but... You know, it's man to man is really it's more just a pride thing. You know, it's an effort thing, and um, I understand that and know when you where you need to be, and knowing personnel that's huge too, especially in the NBA. You know, no playing man to man. I'm looking forward to it. I'm ready. Now I now I know I can defend, and I want to just prove that to people. So the two three zone is obviously synonymous with Jim Beheim, and right. Let's just let's just call it what it is. Jim Beheim has a reputation of being curmudgeonly. Let's go with as he's uh, gotten up into his seventies. What are what are some of the best Jim Beheim stories that you can share with us that you oh, experienced? Um, I can share up, up here all day and tell stories, but um, <clears throat> I think one of the funniest ones I remember at halftime. I forget who we're playing, but at halftime, my sophomore year, he I, I think I was I didn't shoot the ball well in the first half, and he had called me. He said, "You look like a statue out there." <laughs> he said that <laughs> and everyone know it was a serious moment in the locker room but it was kind of hard not to just chuckle really quick so it was just funny and uh, that was that was just one moment of, of a million I could say but uh, he, he's a funny dude and he's, I, I love him uh, great coach and um, he had all my respect so let's get into some of the fun stuff about you you know at Syracuse you mm. were responsible for playing seemingly 38 minutes a night it felt like right. most of the time uh, for a lot of guys, that would be a struggle that would, they would break down. But for you, it probably wasn't because uh-huh. from, you know, some of the background that I've gotten, you know, you're just like a crazy like distance runner from what mm-hmm. I gather. Like you, yeah. uh, you love it. Like that's how you spend your downtime. Right. Yeah. I like, to, I've been running a lot, especially this quarantine. Um, it's just peaceful to me. I like to run. It's, it's just, I'm not like to do, but I mean, you know, it, it's different though. You know, it, it, Basketball shape is way different than the you know, running shape, you know, with the cuts and the, um, you know, the, the you get hit by screens and the mm-hmm. boxing out, all that stuff that wears and tears on the body. But when you're running, it's none of that. It's just you 
and you're outside or treadmill, whatever it is, is you and you and the ground. So <laughs> it's it's much different. You know, people try to compare the two, but I just I just run because one is good for you, and I, and I love to do it. So those are the biggest reasons why. So uh, I was also told that you're super into fashion. That you love yeah. uh, the idea of like designing fashion, and at some point, like you would love to be able to do that um, if your you know career goes well enough in the NBA, and even if it doesn't, like that's something you would love to get into. What makes you so hype about fashion? Well, it's more like this: the sneaker industry part. Uh, I'm really big into sneakers. Um, like if I'm looking at someone's outfit, the first thing I look at is their sneakers to see what they have on. Uh, I'm the same way. Been, Feel the same yeah, way. I've always been big on sneakers. Uh, <laughs> No, I can. There's not a lot of sneakers I don't know about. You know, from even the time I was before I was born. You know, I do a lot of my research. I study a lot. Uh, you know, there'll be times I'll be in my room just looking at different sneakers for hours, just on my phone, just looking at sneakers, um, seeing what I want to get next, seeing what I look forward to getting. I'm able to ever play in the NBA and get a, you know a good portion of money. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm really just big. I love sneakers. I love sneakers. That's awesome. Uh, how many pair of sneakers do you have? Honestly, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I couldn't even tell you. Way, way too many. Way too many. Love that. Um, one, thing about, one thing about Syracuse I enjoyed about Coach Benham too is uh, he didn't really care. As long as it was Nike, he didn't really care what sneakers you had. Nike or Jordan, it didn't matter of a color. So I was I was able to you know have a lot of fun with that. You know, wear uh, pretty much whatever whatever shoe I wanted. That's amazing. Uh, so I was also told your favorite football team is the Eagles, even though you're yeah. from New York. How did that happen? I was I was a Michael Vick fan back in the day before he you know. It's a great answer. Happened, before everything happened, uh, um, you know I liked him and Deshaun Jackson a lot, and uh, I kind of steered away from football for a little bit for a while. But uh, I've just always been an Eagles fan since then. They won the Super Bowl, and then I was kind of hype off that too. <laughs> yeah, uh, Michael Vick's obviously a very complicated person, but there is. Yeah no denying the excitement and like the exactly. energy that that dude brought to a football exactly. field. Just every time that he had the ball, you felt like it was, it was going to be a touchdown. It felt like exactly. So you had to watch every snap. <laughs> okay. So the last three questions that I am asking everyone that I have on the podcast. The first one is who is the best guy that you played against uh, in your two years at Syracuse? My two years at Syracuse. Oh, easily Zion Williamson. Easily. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty reasonable response. What stood out to you about <laughs> Zion? Um, just you know how how physical he was and you know, how athletic he was, you know, and also how agile he was. You don't really see that in the guys that big. The way he can move, the way he can get off the floor, up and down the court, and um, you know, just obviously the way he jumps is is, is unbelievable and that's something that you know I've never seen in my life. You know, some of the rebounds he got against us, some of the blocks he had against us. Some of the dunks he had against us was just stuff that was kind of inhuman. So that was that was pretty amazing to see. Yeah, he's he really is just like not human. Like you could tell yeah, me like <laughs> at some point that guy's going to get a blood test and it's going to come back that he's like an alien. I'd be like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah, he's, um, he's something else. Now that you've got some time during quarantine, I would imagine that you're like everyone else you're trying to find something on TV to watch, you're trying to find mm-hmm. something to pass your time when you're not running. Right. Uh, right. What are some of the TV shows, some of the movies that you've been able to catch up on during this time? Um, to be honest, I'm not really huge on, you know, Netflix or, you know, Hulu or, or shows or anything like that. I've been watching a lot of basketball, to be honest with you. Um, Good for you. I've been watching a bunch of like 
just older, like NBA playoff series, uh, a lot of Kobe highlights, just, you know, reminiscing from when I was a kid, enjoying it, just trying to, you know, refine the fun, just make sure I'm still, you know, finding the fun in it. Um, so, yeah, I love watching, like, older, older games with, uh, like, KD's rookie year, LeBron, he was younger. So, I just, that's, that's what I love to do. Who's your favorite uh, player of all time? LeBron James. 100% LeBron James. Why? Uh, he's my childhood. You know, he's been yeah going to the finals since I was, <laughs> since I was, I think, what, sixth grade? Except for, like, last year or whatever. So, you know, he, that's literally my childhood. Uh, I have posters in my room. Um, I have almost all his sneakers. Uh, you know, I'm a huge LeBron guy. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you put it the way that, like, you grew up with him because I'm even yeah. – like eight years older than you. I'm 30. Right. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in Pittsburgh and the closest NBA team is Cleveland when he was drafted in 2003. And like, shit, like even I feel like I grew up with LeBron James, right? Like he's just always been around. Yeah. Yeah. He spans generations and like really like just brings people together. Right. Exactly. It's crazy. It's really unbelievable. All right. The last thing here before I let you go, Elijah, uh, I can't imagine a circumstance where you're not going to get drafted and where you're not going to end up with some sort of money to spend on something. So what is the first thing that you want to buy whenever you get that first contract? Um, you know, I don't, I don't really know. Probably just, probably just be smart with it. You know, uh, give, you know, a ton to my parents. Um, if not all, not all of it, but, most of it to my parents, you know, let them you know, figure out what they want to do with it, with you know, whether it's paying off homes or cars or whatever the case may be, and you know, let them have that. You know, they, they deserve it. Uh, they deserve it more than me. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. So you know, it'd be foolish for me not to take care of them first. That's an incredible answer, and you deserve so much credit for it. But there's got to be something fun you want to buy, right? Yeah, I mean, for sure, there's stuff I have in <laughs> mind. But, uh, probably one thing I really, really want to buy. Uh, that's, that's a tough answer. That's a tough question. Um, probably, I don't know, some some pair of sneakers. I don't know. I have to like find and look at some like a lot of money. <laughs> got to gotta drop like five grand on a pair of speaker, uh, a pair of sneakers. I, I was thinking like 10, 15 grand. But <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. Not yeah. only are you a, uh, a great person who wants to give back to his family uh, before you think of yourself, you are someone that is a fellow sneakerhead. And I love that so much about you. Elijah Hughes, thank you for coming on. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe. Do everything you do to support the podcast. We'll be back next week talking about the NBA's restart. So until next time, we'll talk soon.